thank you for that song. It's always been a good reminder of how much we need each other as a church and the importance of gathering together corporately uh, with COVID. Um, we all had to retreat for a time. Uh, but that song um, came out, I believe, it was early 2000s, if I remember right. Just a strong reminder of how much we need to rub elbows with people from different walks of life. And that's the one thing that I love about coming to church. This isn't part of the sermon, um, but when we are together and we all have our different backgrounds and we start talking to each other, we learn so much from one another. And it's so important to be able to have an open heart willing to just listen to one another and to learn from each other. And we become better off for it in our interacting with each other. Now, last week, we met together, and we looked at the first half of 1 Timothy chapter 5. While not your typical sermon material, uh, the content that we did cover as we worked through Paul's writings were very instructive. Uh, he had shifted his focus from the qualifications of leaders, which he really was talking about for the first three or so chapters, almost four chapters uh, of this book, and now he has, he's shifted from qualifications to duties and responsibilities of the church leadership. Now, as he's starting the duties and responsibilities section of this letter, he is focused both on our individual responsibilities and those responsibilities that the church has. So he was shifting back and forth on where we end and where the church steps in, both specifically uh, talking about those who needed financial help and Paul did his best to clear out any, what we call, ambiguity as he tried to make the lines as clear as possible in the first 16 verses of this chapter. So in effect, what he was trying to do is he was giving us a tiered pyramid of how we should look at our responsibility of giving. And I'll put up, I, put a, I made a diagram here. Uh, from what we read last week, it became obvious that Paul first felt that it was our individual responsibility to attempt to help to step in and, and help a struggling family member out. And part of the sermon last week was dedicated to the helping and understanding of what was a good candidate for this help and who was not, to who we should be helping financially. All too many of us have been in the place of feeling guilty or obligated towards someone who squanders or misuses the money that was intended to help them. And Paul then moved from the individual responsibility and he came along towards other family members. So coming along and joining, saying, you know what, I can't financially uh, help mom or grandma myself. Can you help me? And, and working together. And he said, you know, family members need to come together to help out as much as they can. And encourage us, encourages us as we work together to learn humility and to work with our own families and finally, he said that the church was going to be the last resort for what he called widows indeed, those who had no family. The church was to become the family for those who had absolutely nobody else to help them. And the church would be there in their time of need. And I think it's very interesting that in the entire section of what we might term social welfare is really what he was talking about, those first 16 verses, not once was the Roman government mentioned. At this point, Rome, even though it could have been um, a massive time, that uh, they were all-powerful, they were everywhere financially, they were very well off, the church could have petitioned their political representatives for help, for financial assistance, but they chose not to. 
Now, last week, I said that we would start removing sections of our memory verse. We've been working on this verse for now about a month or a little bit more, and hopefully this isn't going to trip you up too much. Hopefully you've been paying attention. I'm going to put it on the screen, and I'll give you a second before we say it together. So here, I'll give you just a second to see if you get your bearings. You know what it is? Here we go. Fight the good fight of faith. There you go. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's 1 Timothy 6, 12. Good job. I heard several people uh, saying that one. I tried to put the uh, first letter up there to try to give you a clue on what that is. I'm going to continue to remove some stuff over the next couple of weeks as next week we begin the last chapter of this book as we're ending our time together. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that we can do it with just a reference on the last week. We'll see how that goes. Now, my purpose in doing this is to help us as we memorize this verse together. And this week, we're going to be covering the second half of chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you want to be open there. Paul's going to switch gears as we start looking at the responsibility of the church and its leadership when it comes to interior issues. So the term and title today is the Christian walk. He's going to be talking practically about how we deal with internal issues and struggles. And really, there's only two points to today's sermon. First one is don't muzzle the ox, and then towing the line. Don't muzzle the ox is actually a shorter section, uh, and then towing the line is really the larger section what he actually gets into. So don't muzzle the ox. Yes, I just called myself the ox, uh, and uh, so anyways, we'll get into that. Through the years, there have been many who have asked the question, should we pay the preacher? And if we do pay the preacher, how much should we pay the preacher? Paul was a full-time missionary, and he was a part-time tent maker, we learned from Scripture. He made tents to partially bring up in some income as he was serving others. Given this fact, there have been many over the years that say pastors should really have two jobs. They should be a pastor and have yet another full-time job. There are many churches today that still have this mentality. And when the church is small and it's unable to financially support a full-time pastor, this idea does have some merit. However, we must remember that while Paul had a second job, he was a missionary and not a pastor. Also, Paul expresses his thoughts very thoroughly in a very similar manner, very clearly. We're actually going to get to, to read that in the first two verses of our uh, section today. So if you have your Bibles open, you're going to want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, out of the New King James, I'm going to be reading. It says, Let the elders who rule... Well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So here we see that double honor should be given to those who rule well, meaning that those who just rule generally should be given some kind of honor. Okay, that makes sense. At first, this seems that they should be given just some kind of respect. You should respect these men who are doing these things because typically when we see the word honor, it means show them some kind of respect. However, verse 18 is going to clarify what he means by the word honor. If you look at verse 18, it says, for scripture says, as you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. 
So here, Paul is combining in verse 18 two verses from Scripture. That's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, and Luke 10, verse 7. And he's making a point here. He's saying, if you've uh, you've been around church circles for a while, and you've had a guest speaker come into the pulpit, what he is given as a payment for his services is called an honorarium. You've probably heard of a guest speaker being given an honorarium. Uh, We do this also in secular areas as well if we have a speaker at the school for a commencement address or something like that. Now, an honorarium is a fee that we pay someone who has performed a service. If you've got a bulletin, you might want to pay attention to that one. From his words here, apparently it was common in Paul's day to pay a full-time preacher. And it seems in these verses that Paul felt it was a good idea that a preacher, if he's a decent preacher and he's, he's good at his job, he should be paid well. That's the double honor. Requiring a pastor to preach and then visit with members regularly, deal with the church policy, and keep a second full-time job in all reality is a recipe for disaster every single time. Typically in this scenario, if the pastor doesn't burn out first and leave the ministry, his family will start to fall apart, taking all the attention away from the congregation. And this is why missions like village missions exist, to help a pastor have a full-time financial Uh, backing in his full-time position in ministry, especially when the church cannot financially support him at that level. It allows the pastor to pour into the congregation, allowing both the pastor and the congregation to be much healthier. It also means that his time and efforts no longer have to be divided. The pastor gets to devote 100% of his work time to building up and strengthening the congregation. And our church is a great example of this. I've said it before, and it bears repeating, that we are now at the point that we are healthy enough, we actually give back to other churches who can't afford a full-time pastor. We give back to Village Missions every single month to help in that endeavor. Part of our giving helps other men, women, and families have a full-time pastor, even though they can't personally financially support them. Much of your giving helps other people hear the word of God all around this country and even in Canada as well, here in the U.S. And we also support a missions family, which we'll be talking about next week during uh, our time as well. So thank you for everything that you give. What you do and what you give goes so far and helps so many hear the word of God. So that was the short point number one, but really our main point today is towing the line as we're going to be working through the rest of the verses. Starting in verse 9 and continuing over the next four verses or so, Paul moves from financially supporting the pastor to supporting him and the other leaders in other ways. And here we're going to see that Paul is talking about accusations that are being thrown at church leadership. However, while he is speaking directly at church leadership, these principles are going to apply across the church as a whole. So he's speaking directly to church leadership, but these principles apply to everybody in the church across the way. So let's start working our way through this. Um, And we're going to read his thoughts in verse 19. He says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. As far as knowing the Jewish law and customs goes, Paul knew the, well, the law well enough that he could have been a very effective lawyer. The guy knew it back and forth. He knew it by his hand. He would have been an excellent lawyer. Here, Paul is building off what is written down in the book of Deuteronomy. 
In chapter 19, the author Moses in Deuteronomy is writing about crimes and punishment and about sanctuary cities and other legal matters, which makes sense because Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. It's a book about the law. In chapter 19, verse 15, we find these words. So Paul is referencing this, and it says in Deuteronomy 19, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So have you ever wondered why we have not one, not two, but four gospels? You ever wondered why we have four different accounts of Jesus and his earthly ministry from four different perspectives? This law is part of the reason why we have so many accounts, because you needed at least two or three to, to to actually validate something in the court of opinion. The more first-hand eyewitnesses, the more likely the story is going to be true. And Jewish law said there had to be a minimum of two to three witnesses. Why? Well, to keep false accusations to a minimum. There are times in my life that I have been offended by someone, what they said or what they did. And now I know you're probably more mature than I am, and you're probably less easily offended than I am, but there have been times where if I was a cartoon character, I would have had steam coming out my ears because of how frustrated some people had made me. Now, maybe you've been there, and these times, because there's been more than one in my life, unfortunately, um, since I was clearly offended, and since I clearly did nothing wrong, it was not my fault, I went and I told my wife. I told her everything that the person had done and how they had wronged me, because obviously my wife would agree with my story of woe, because our spouses should always agree with us, right? No. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. I found that out. After telling my wife my, my story of woe and why I was not at fault and why the other person was, explaining every single detail of why uh, I should not be, um, I should be innocent in all reality, at least in my opinion, she sits there, she ponders, and she asks one, maybe two very logical questions. And it helps me to see the perspective of the other person. And it completely changed my viewpoint on the situation. And just like that, she helps me to see my error. It's what my wife does. It's what we can do as spouses as we uplift one another. The book of Proverbs says, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. And Paul, in passing his wisdom on to Timothy, says, don't give credit to people who are ac accusing or accusations unless multiple people are saying the same thing. Don't give credit to something unless a whole bunch of people are saying the same thing. But what happens when two or three people come in saying the same thing? How do we act upon that information? What do we do? Where do we go from there? Well, let's look at the next verse. In the next verse, he says these words, those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. Now, the principle here is that when a sin has been publicly viewed, and I want to state that, publicly viewed, that everyone in the congregation knows about it. Everybody knows this is happening. This is very obvious to the entire congregation. This is one of those sins that everybody knows about, that it should be addressed publicly to let everyone know that it has been dealt with because everybody already knows about it. This is especially true with a church leader. Now, this is where discernment comes in. We have to have discernment here. If a sin has been committed by a church member and it doesn't concern the rest of the congregation, 
It should not be brought openly or discussed openly. There's a difference. This, what he's saying is something that is done, especially by a church leader that everybody knows of and needs to be dealt with publicly. However, there are private sins that just need to be dealt with privately, and there's discernment there. When a church leader or an officer in the church sins, it has hurt the people. And then it must be dealt with publicly. And Paul understood that the sin in the life of church leadership, if it wasn't dealt with, could slowly destroy the church. And Paul understood that this would be a hard thing to do. As typically, in all reality, if you're like me, we want to keep the church looking good. We, we want to look like everything's under control from the outside. We don't want to air our dirty laundry And Paul knew that this would be the tendency of the church, that we would shy away from this. So he writes verse 21 for us. He says these words, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice and doing nothing with partiality. So in a very strict and straightforward way, Paul has said, Timothy, you have to do this. You have to be able to rebuke these men and women in this way if the situation arises. And this all has to be done without partiality. No matter who it was, no matter what position they are in the church, no matter how much they gave to the church, everybody should be subject to the same standards. Now in verse 22, he offers a word of caution. He says these words. He says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. So he says, don't be too quick to burn someone at the stake. Don't just hop on and say, nope, no, we're going to ding them down. There's a saying that you may have heard before. It says, the wheels of justice turn slowly. The wheels of justice turn slowly. There's a good reason why. If we condemn an innocent person, we really haven't done our jobs. Not correctly, at least. We haven't considered all the evidence that is before us. And in this, Paul is also saying that, especially as church leadership, we should keep from joining in conversations that put down other people. That we shouldn't engage in gossip and that we shouldn't take part in someone else's sin. or Backbiting is another way that that's said. So recently we've talked about church membership and what that means. As members of this church, we abide by certain standards. We agree that we're all going to live by a certain set of standards. We have purposely chosen not to live by the world's standards, but rather Christ's. In our church constitution, in our stated purpose, you're going to find what we call the church's covenants on page three. Uh, And we're actually going to be referencing that here in just a moment. The covenant is the agreement that we as church members have agreed to live by and to hold one another to. It's four simple paragraphs right at the beginning of our covenant. Constitution, sorry, lost the word there for a second. Um, It's right there at the beginning, and it's four simple paragraphs. And we say, number one in the first paragraph, that you have to be a Christ follower. You have to accept Christ as Lord, which makes sense, because we only hold Christians to Christ's standards. The world has not accepted Christ, and therefore they have not accepted his standards, so we can't hold them to them. We hold one another to them. Now, since Paul is talking about holding one another to a standard, I thought that this would be a perfect time to show you a little bit, just a glimpse of what our church membership agrees to. So the the second paragraph that you'll find in our constitution will read partly this. I, I just took out a snippet of the paragraph. We promise by the aid of the Holy Spirit to forsake the ways of sin and to walk together in Christian love in the paths of righteousness. After accepting Christ as Savior, our lives, as we live by the Holy Spirit who guides us, should start to become reoriented. 
Before Christ, we are self-centered. We are driving for ourselves, for ourselves to look better, to always bring all the glory to ourselves. But then Christ comes in, and it's no longer me, myself, and I. Jesus slowly changes our heart, and we become others-focused, and we start caring about other people slowly, more and more, just like Jesus and his love for us. And in the second paragraph of our statement, it continues on to say that we will commit together to sustain the church, that we will become faithful stewards that come through uh, the way that we have and what God has given us and our talents, our money that God has individually prospered each of our lives, which means that some of us are going to be giving more in some areas than others, depending on what God has given us in our own lives. Our lives should reflect what God is doing in our lives, not reflect what God is doing in our neighbor's lives. Our lives should reflect the work that God is doing in us, not the work that God is doing in our neighbor. The third paragraph of the covenant begins with these words. It says, we also engage to maintain family and private devotions, to teach the Bible to our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred, that's family, and acquaintances. A part of the lifestyle of a healthy Christian is to attend church services regularly, to be involved with the church regularly. There's something that we only can get when we gather together, when we're here together rubbing elbows with one another. And I talked about that at the very beginning of the service. However, it doesn't stop there. We believe that a healthy Christ follower should be personally responsible, personally engaged with God's word regularly, even through the midweek. That we, especially as parents during this time, should be teaching our children the word of God. That we should be engaging other people in our lives with God's word, whether they are our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members. But even that doesn't stop there. We all know men and women who have claimed to be Christ followers, but their lives have shown a different picture. Can I say that way? This is why the middle third uh, paragraph says these words. To avoid unkind words and unrighteous anger, to abstain from intemperance in all spheres of life and from every form of evil. We recognize that as growing Christ followers, our lives should be slowly transforming to look more like his. We should look more like Jesus, that our old man should slowly be fading away as we're walking and growing closer with Christ. And part of this means that we become more even tempered as we grow. Now, the final paragraph and what will actually slowly lead us back to Paul's instructions are these. And this is the last one I'll put up for this. We further engage to give and receive admonition with meekness and affection, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feelings and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the scriptures. Here's a question. How does the, the world view the church today? When you think about what you read in the news right now, what do they say about the church? When they see the church, do they see a people who give and receive criticism with humility? Do they see a people who have courtesy in their speech? People who are slow to take offense and are always ready for reconciliation? Written words like these, the ones that we have in our covenant, they sound really great on paper. They're like, this is a great standard. This is why we put this in there, because it sounds really good. But they're nothing if we can't live them out. If we don't actually implement this into our lives, these words mean nothing. 
the final verse of this chapter that we're reading through in chapter 5, the, the final verses, they're a bit of a mixed bag. Paul kind of uh, pepper sprays and, and shoots out a couple of different verses. Now, remember, when these letters were written, they were dictated by Paul to a scribe who wrote down his thoughts. Paul wasn't sitting there with a pen and paper or in front of a typewriter or a computer. He actually was talking and somebody was off in the corner writing down all of his words. He wasn't looking at the words. So it would be much easier for him to get off of topic, randomly saying something that comes to his mind. So point in case is verse 23, which really doesn't fit in with the rest of the chapter at all. If you take a look at it, and I'll put it on the screen, verse 23 says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake as your frequent infirmities. Now, I don't know if you've ever sat down to do something that you knew was going to take a lot of thought, um, and just as you get going, all of a sudden, a bunch of other stuff comes into your mind. You ever, you ever been writing down the groceries, and all of a sudden, you remember, I forgot to shut off the oven, or something like to that nature? Well, this is probably exactly what happened to Paul. He was thinking, he was working it through, and all of a sudden, he was like, oh, yeah, don't forget about this, because the back of his mind was working in another area. And this kind of is what it feels like. Now, there are many, speaking of this very verse, who have tried to take this uh, passage as a, you can drink alcohol as a Christian passage. That is another topic for another day. But there are much clearer verses that actually give us a much better idea than this one on that particular subject. The clear thought from this particular passage, though, and this verse is Paul is advocating medicine to Timothy. There are many today that believe in faith healing. And I believe that God does heal. I completely agree that God still does miracles. I believe that God still heals. It's why we pray. Otherwise, why would we pray if we didn't believe that he still did this? I believe that God still does miracles. I know personally people who have prayed and tumors have disappeared. I know people who have prayed and cancer has gone. And then again, in so many other areas, God still heals by faith. But there is a crowd that says God only heals by faith. That man's medicine is completely useless and you are of the devil if you use any medicine at all. And Paul clearly doesn't believe that since he suggests using a home remedy to heal Timothy's stomach. And that's really the point of this verse here. So the final two verses that we're going to cover before we end the sermon today uh, are a bit of a flip side of a coin. He says one from one end and then he says it from the other. So I put them both on the screen as we're going to cover them. He says, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to the judgment by those of some of them follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Paul tells us that some people wear their sin on their sleeve, and it's obvious to everyone. However, many will also have secret sins that won't be revealed until the judgment day of God as they stand before him. In many ways, he's saying that some sin will be judged here and now, while there will be other sin that won't be judged until we stand before God. And God has his reasons. And probably the most interesting thing here is that he's not talking about unbelievers contextually. Actually, he was just talking about church people and church leadership, which is interesting. He's talking about Christ followers who have hidden sins. Sins that they refuse to let go since they've gotten really good at hiding them. And Paul is reminding Timothy that all sins will be revealed one day in their own time as God has appointed. And interestingly, he says, in many ways, good works are the same way. There are going to be some who we see their works very easily. We see their good works daily. 
However, there will be those who quietly do good. They do good things and they try to, to take no credit for it. They try to stay behind the scenes. And he's telling Timothy that not all of our good deeds are gonna be rewarded here on the earth. Some of you will do something good and you will receive absolutely no reward for it. And one day God will reward your good works for the things that you have done behind the scenes for other people and for him. And regardless, at the end of the day, God knows every good need, every motive of our hearts, whether good or evil. And one day he'll pronounce judgment on everything that we can hide and reward everything that we did in faith. Now today we finished chapter five. That was the rest of chapter five. Most of our chapter was talking about holding one another towards Christ-centered standards. The early church turned the world on its head. And I truly believe that it wasn't the miracles that were performed that did so. I believe and I think that it was the fact that the whole church at that time both walked and talked the gospel. They were consistent in their lives on what they said and what they did. Every aspect of their lives, even when it put their lives at risk. Now, with that said, I have two closing questions as I can see I'm slowly losing you because this has been a heavy topic day. Here we go. Number one, question number one is, what standard have you accepted as a Christian that you have not lived up to? Now, I've said it before and I'm gonna keep on saying it. If you're here on this earth, it's because God is still working on you or he's working on someone else through you. God has you here for a purpose. Don't forget to ask him why. Ask him, and this week, he will teach you something. Ask for his assistance. Ask him to guide you, and he will answer. Second question. When the world sees you, what kind of Christ follower do they see? I asked earlier, how does the world view the church today? When they see the church, do they see a people who give and receive criticism with humility? Do they see a people who have courtesy in their speech, who are slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation? When they see you, what do they see? The author James once aptly said that our words are empty without actions to back them up. So the question is, what actions are you showing the world? Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this time that we can go through your word, Lord, and look at standards. Father, I know that you love us and that you want the best for us. And what you give in front of us are things to help us to make our lives better. And I thank you for the leadership that is in this church. And I thank you for every single person that is here. Father, you have assembled a unique body of people for a very specific purpose. We are not here by accident. Father, I thank you so much for what you're doing and will continue to do. Lord, I ask that you continue to reveal exactly why you have us here at this time as I know it is your desire for us to know that. Father, help us to be found serving you, to be giving out your word to any who will listen and to make it a practice to learn more about you daily. I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Team. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by Scripture to gather together 
so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's Word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.